before I left for my trip, um, sort of stumbled into grace by um, finding a record by a family band, a couple of brothers that um, I've been looking for for some time on this journey uh, after 12 years and 2,000 interviews. Uh, this country is just saturated with incredible regional music and the people that made that music. One of those places was Detroit, Michigan, where my next guest hails from. And many people know about, you know, George Clinton and Aretha Franklin and so many great jazzers that came out of there and obviously all the cats, the Funk Brothers and, and that and whatnot. And then all of a sudden you realize that there's an even deeper layer to it, this gut bucket, greasy, blue-eyed funk that was going on with my guest and his brother in many iterations, and uh, they made a bunch of albums on Eastbound Records. My guest has continued on today and really made an incredible career for himself uh, in many diversified settings, but he was there when the reality is that human rhythm, collective human rhythm, really healed a lot of people, and uh, I can only hope that um, as we move forward um, that people will recognize um, the lack of intimacy in electronic drum machines and, frankly, electronic music in general, even though that has its place, and return to the pulse and the dynamics and the tension and release of real human beings on the bandstand. Dallas Hodge, welcome to The Jake Feinberg Show. Hi, Jake. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, it's my honor, man. You know, I wanted to start, I'd love you to talk a little bit about Ma and Pa Hodge, and most importantly, um, I have to believe that growing up you guys were um, self-taught musicians, and I kind of wanted you to talk about, you know, how they exposed you to music and also, you know, sort of that, the vibe that they gave off as it related to uh, just your being your parents. Well, when we lived on Fairview Street, on the east side of Detroit, there used to be uh, a bar at the corner uh, where we got introduced to John Lee Hooker. He used to play there from time to time on the weekends. Wow. Uh, Ma was a friend of B.B. King's. Um, actually, he had a, his nickname for her was Chica. And... Um, <laughs> She took us to she took us to see him one night at this blues club in Hamtramck, but we couldn't get in. My drummer and myself, we couldn't get in because we were underage. And Ma said, "Well, you guys stay right here. I'm gonna go inside and say hi to BB, and I'll be back out in a few minutes." And she went in and came back in about ten fifteen minutes, and then uh, and that was that. And then as time had gone on, um, she was she was always. Uh, she, she loved bluegrass. She loved the blues. She loved rock and roll. My dad and her, they used to sing uh, Lonesome Pine together. Oh, no, are guitars. you kidding me? I knew this. I knew Somehow I knew this. And uh, that was one of her favorites. She used to love the gospel stuff as well, uh, which was always phenomenal. And, you know, she would come out to uh, my gigs, not so much Bob's, and, and do this. She would come out to my gigs and She'd be standing out in the audience, and you know, one of her favorite songs that we used to play back then was uh, a song by uh, the Soul Brothers Six called "Some Kind of Wonderful." Oh, sure. And she would be out in the audience. Uh, there could be 250 people in the room. I remember we played this place called the Kegabrew up on Harper and Cajunary, oh, and uh, she was, and that was with my Detroit All Stars band, which had uh, Drew Abbott on guitar from Seeger's band and Chris Campbell on bass from Seeger's band. Oh man, uh, Jesus. Norma Bell on saxophone. I mean, it was truly an all-star setup. And you could hear her singing some kind of wonderful for the background parts in the back of the bar from the stage. Wow. How penetrating her voice was. And everybody <laughs> loved her. I mean, everybody loved her. She'd come to the gig. Everybody would all, you know, they would pay more attention to her than they would the rest of us. <laughs> I know, dude, what I love is that she recognized as a, as a fanatic and as a, and, you know, in her own way as an as a artist, musician, how much the audience can affect the collective consciousness of the gig itself. That's what I try to do when I go to the gigs is get the musicians out of their thinking mind into the spirit mind. Although, I, you know, being a woman, 
she, you know, people were probably just much more interested in, you know, they were they were interested in her more than any of the of the band, you know. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, she she and my brother both introduced me to Bonnie Raitt at one of the uh, Ann Arbor Blues festivals. Wow. Um, wow. Which that relationship has continued to this day, and uh, yeah, and she she became known. At, my dad, he was a journeyman steam fitter for Uniroyal for 30 plus years. He retired from the plant there in Detroit on the river. Ma was, became known as the rock and roll mom of Detroit. And at one time, one point, they did a two page spread in the Detroit news uh, with a picture of her and my brother sitting on the back porch and my brother holding an acoustic guitar and talked about you know, uh, her and and everything, uh, or a lot of the things that had occurred over time. I mean, it was like, Ma was always the savior, so to speak, for the musicians who had less. You know, if you needed a place to stay, we got a room. You need a meal, come by. I love this. She's making my day. dollars, come by and see us. And uh, that's the way it rolled the entire time. And, uh, God love her. I mean, she was just the best. I want to, I want, Dallas, I want to go back as best you can. I mean, obviously you weren't born there, but I, you know, maybe I'm thinking that, you know, a job, there was a job offer for your dad. That's why you went, no, that's why he went north. But well, what, he came, he came north uh, in 19, what was it, 1940 something? He came up there on vacation, him and a buddy of his from the mines down in Kentucky. And they got up there, and my dad decided he was going to stay, and his friend decided he was going to go back to Kentucky. So my dad got a job working at uh, Kaiser Fraser uh, Motor Car, and the guy who was the supervisor took a shine to him and got into discussion about steam and, and steam engines and all of that stuff. And my dad said, yeah, you know, I used to take and run steam engines that, you know, they cut logs with so on and so forth. So he took a shine to my dad and put, took him under his wing, and he actually got him into pipe fitter school, wow. uh, steam fitting. And, and my dad became a certified steam fitter thanks to his friend who took him under his wing. Um, this is what this is what I wanted. I wanted you to just riff on this for the audience and the cats that are younger cats especially. Not that uh, – it, it's fascinating. Just in, in the sense of um, – let's just take bluegrass music for a minute, which I know Ma – Hodge was a big fan. Um, in the mid-60s, I just did a couple interviews with these incredible folk bluegrass musicians um, a, a, a month ago or so, and even what was revelatory to me was the fact that even in the folk aesthetic or the bluegrass, there was, there was a formula you had to follow if you were considered to be an authentic folk musician. You had to go through the academy, you had to learn certain tunes, this right. and then by the mid '60s. Now, I mean, again, you were a young boy, but all of a sudden, cats like you know Vassar Clements and you know other cats, these cats from rural parts of the country, were coming out playing burning, burning music. And at that time, because they were such exceptional musicians, ear trained musicians, that that was considered at that point as valid as anything that a curriculum would be like and i just wanted your you to talk about just in general the idea of like being being some being able to form your own voice and your own sound and get up on the bandstand and really become a professional without having to go through this conformist academic thing that i mean i'm 45 and so many cats today it's like oh I have to go to Berkeley, or I have, and they have to graduate. And there were plenty of cats that went to these schools before. They didn't even graduate because there were so many gigs. And I just kind of wanted you to talk a little bit about being the the kind of vibe that your your mom or your and both your parents gave off, being from a place that you really had to sing for your supper, but there was no one right way or wrong way to do it. Yeah, it was, it was, you just did it. I mean, my grandfather on my mom's side, um, he was a Baptist minister. He played 33 different instruments. Oh my, what was his name? Uh, Harm Hodge. Harm Hodge. 
Yeah, it was spelled the biblical way, H-I-R-A-M. Actually, I'm sorry, take that back. Hiram Adkins, A-D-K-I-N-S. 33 instruments? Yes. I unfortunately never got to meet him because he passed away three months before I was born. Uh, But I heard lots of stories. Can you share, I mean, to me, this guy was playing maybe the pipe organ or, I mean, tell me a legendary... He pretty much played all the stringed instruments and also played some woodwinds, from what I understood. Wow. Um, I, you know, like I said, I never got to meet him, and I you know, never did know everything about him. I do know that when they were alive and lived down in a little place called Denton, Kentucky, uh, that Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs, um, used to stop by on Sunday. Oh, no. God, oh, yeah. They, they oh, great, no. Oh. They have a great big picking and grinning session. This my is what I'm talking about, man. I, it's all I care about is picking and grinning, man. My grandmother, she was, she was uh, a good Southern cook, just like my mom was a good Southern cook. Nobody made better fried chicken. Oh, than man. Uh, but, you know, Graham, she'd make, you know, big pot of potatoes and fried chicken and fresh green beans picked out of the garden and Lester and Earl would come over, and then every once in a while, Ted Atkins might stop by. Oh, no way, dude. Oh, yeah. oh my God, dude. It was like, uh, <laughs> it was uh, down home, Kentucky style. Hold on, how far how, how far was, or was Chet coming from Nashville? or I mean, how far was that trip? Back at that time, I'm not real sure. And, and I mean, there were stories of that, that that she used to do that there, and she also used to do that at the house that they used to have up in Legan, Kentucky, which was where the mines were. And I think that was probably closer to where a lot of those guys were coming from at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was like, you know, the stories that I heard were like, you know, okay, this down home book. We're we going to go over to, to Grandma Atkins' place and have some good meals and do some picking and grinning and just have a good old day. And they'd sit out on the French porch for hours, I was told, and just sit there picking and grinning and singing away. This is the, I mean, you're making my year, Dallas. Thank you so much, man. I mean, seriously, <laughs> this is what I my gut was telling me. I mean, just for the, I, I, I granted, you know, I mean, do you think that, please tell me that that's still, that com- I mean, I feel like we're so desperate the media at least makes it out that we are so divided and polarized. Do you think that even though we lived in a very different time technologically, radio and being an autodidact was absolutely the way to be? We were not, like television had not infiltrated us as much. Do you think it just brought humanity closer together, having those kinds of experiences? To me, like that's... Oh, yeah. You had no interruptions with the TV and stuff. The only thing you could do back then was listen to the radio. <laughs> You know, right. listen to Roosevelt doing his Sunday, uh, right. Sunday night exactly. You know, that, that was it. And I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I used to go down and stay at my grandmother's house every year from my summer vacation until I was 15, I think it was. Uh, I learned later on the reason why my parents took me down there to spend the summer vacation. Ah, I'll, I'll leave that to everybody's imagination. <laughs> uh, but I used to go down there, and, and, and Grams would get up at, you know, 4 o'clock in the morning, stoke a fire in the, in the coal stove in the kitchen. Uh, mm. Mm. And, well, actually, before she'd stoke a, the fire in the kitchen, she'd go out and get water out of the well and bring it into the house. And then she'd go out and slap the hog and uh, melt the cow. And then come back in, and that's when I would wake up, and she'd go in and fire up the stove and cook breakfast. And it was, you know, breakfast can, consisted of what they – it used to be a bologna that she used to get all the time down. It was called Kentucky Border, and it was basically a big chunk bologna. You know, right, right. It however you want it. And uh, she'd make that every morning and some fried eggs that she picked up out of the hen house when she come back from the barn. Uh, so everything was always fresh. Oh, this but is the great – she was on a little seven-acre plot, and she farmed pretty much the whole plot. I mean, I would go down there, and, and she had corn eggs. I had some pictures. I don't even know where they are now. I had a, some pictures where the corn was about eight feet tall, and I was six feet tall. <laughs> so, you know, I'd walk through the corn. She'd give me a big machete, and she'd keep your eyes open. I'd go, what am I looking for, Graham? She goes, you never know when you're going to run across a copperhead or a black snake. Oh, boy. That, that's really settling in. I mean, that would make me feel a little bit paralyzed right there. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and, and 
she had indoor plumbing, but it used to freeze every winter and break, and it wouldn't get fixed until my dad came down there to, to either bring me down there or bring me home, and he'd do the repairs on it. And when it was broke, she'd just go out to the well house, stick in a five-gallon bucket that had holes in the bottom of it, believe it or not, so she'd have enough strength to pull it up out of there and then pour it into another bucket to take into the house. And that was how we did everything. We used to take a bath in a big round tin uh, horse trough in the front yard with the water that came off of the roof. That's what Elvin Bishop told me that. I think he had like eight kids in his family, and he was the last one to get in, too. Like, it was, that was, oh, I'm sorry, what was your grandma's name? Virgie. Virgie Adkins. So she, so she basically, in, spot, in, in, in the most inspiring way, once your grand, granddad passed, she just picked up the slack and did everything. Oh, yeah. I mean, she was she was she was the farmer boy. She didn't, you know, and uh, she killed she killed some rattlesnakes, not rattlesnakes down there. They're more copperheads and black snakes. Mm-hmm. But she killed a few of them in her time. And I, I never forgot the story. One time, she went out to the barn. She had a big tobacco barn because she had a a, a base where she rented out to this guy it was for a seven hundred pound tobacco base. And when they cut the tobacco, they would bring it into the garage to let it, you know, cure. And she went out there one day, and she always carried a machete when she went to the barn or anywhere in the fields, just just to be safe. Sure. She she went out there one day, and all of a sudden, this black snake just rolled down out of the top of the barn, hanging from its tail, Whoa. right into her, right at her face. And she she said to me, she goes, "Oh no, you don't!" Bam, and his head ended up in one place, and the body in another. <laughs> the reflexes on on her, amazing, dude. To, to, to oh yeah. Okay, so, so I don't want to be naive here. Did you guys, did you and your bro ever come across this cat, Washboard Willie, in Detroit? You know, the name sounds really familiar. James Jamerson used to, when he wasn't at Motown, this is a, uh, he used to, Washboard Willie was the, I mean, he played Washboard, obviously, and would right. go, and, and I mean, he played with cats like Hooker. But, like, Jamerson would go out and play upright bass with him. He was his favorite musician in Detroit. And I'm just trying to get this idea, like, my mom's from Saginaw, and, you know, I've never seen Detroit in a necessarily a healthy state. But the cats that I've talked to, Wendell Harrison, so many jazzers, there was, like, department store lofts in Detroit, and you had soul jazz going on in all these different clubs and blues. Oh, yeah. And I'm just like, I'm trying to figure out, like, how much of the, how much, like, crossover or integration, maybe is the better word, how much exposure outside of the hooker at the blues? I mean, did you you ever stumble across a sanctified church? I mean, how how much did you get into that that black scene? I used to play guitar. At a gospel church on Kerchival oh my God. that my neighbors down the street turned me on to a black family, the Terrys. And they invited me to come to church with them. So we had a piano player, uh, a percussion bongo player, uh, a bass player, and myself playing guitar. This is unbelievable. How old were you? Twelve. Twelve years old. Yeah, I just <laughs> had started I just had started to play. Oh that God. was it. And so my mom and dad, you know, they used to ask me, you know, you having fun? I go, oh, yeah, it's a good time. We had, uh, there was a, a black female gospel group called Ten, was it Ten Tons of Fun? Three two, big, huge women. Was I it mean, two tons of fun or, or ten tons of fun? I, it could have been two tons. I just remember it was three huge black ladies that were, at my age, they were three times the size of me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they would come in and, 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 Every once in a while, they'd come through and, and you know, go up on it by the by the where the preacher stands. And uh, we had a great big old upright piano over against one wall, and that's where we all sat. And then there was a bunch of chairs out in front, some pews, but a lot of chairs. And I tell you, these women would come in and they would do it, and they would make everybody in the church they would be up on their feet, and the church would be vibrating. This is what I want to hear about, dude, because this is the only way that humanity is going to get saved is through rhythm. 
and through I mean, was the, there was no trap drummer. You just had bongos and and uh, bongos. That was it. And yeah. I didn't even really know how to play guitar yet. I was still fumbling around trying to figure out. Okay, how do I play this chord? <laughs> <laughs> and I was surprised that they invited me and they let me stay there. <laughs> well, they saw that you had. I mean, the soul. I mean, that feeling that even though you were just trying to figure out the apparatus. I mean, can you talk about the healing quality? Was that when you, when you realized that music could be a healing force? Like when you would walk out of there and say, I don't know what, what I just experienced, but I know I could feel and it, I know it was real. I think that it's because of my mom and dad and, and the history in our family. That was kind of... It was already I, built in, yeah. It was kind of like already built in. And just going to the church that way just fulfilled something else that, you know... I was not really a church-going person. I believe in a higher power. I wouldn't say that I'm any particular religion, mm -hmm. but I do, I do believe that there is something or someone, somebody up there that does steer us in a good direction and saves our tails from time to time. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. Uh, you know, you might call him God, you might call him, you know, Buddha, or whatever, whatever, whatever. Every religion has a, a monarch. And uh, it was just always, to me, it was just always, I come out of that church and I was feeling like a million dollars. And mm. I enjoyed my time there for the years that I played there. I think I played there for just a couple of years. And then I started uh, getting more serious about it and then started having a band and doing gigs. And, and then it just went on its own and on its way. Um, Your brother, would you say that... Uh how much? How what kind of age difference is? Or do you guys have? Oh, it is a big age difference. He's nine years my senior. Okay, so the reason, so when he, when you were going back for summer va vacation in 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 Kentucky, he was already shedding on the bandstand in Detroit, or was what was he up to at that time? No, he was driving cars and stuff, and had a job at uh, working at a loan company. No, this is unbelievable. Was playing uh, at a bar on the east side. His first band was called the Lawmen. And it was him and a drummer named Tyrone Lazuka, a bass player named Dennis Self, <sighs> and who was the other guitar player? Ken Maynard, I think. Who went on the Lawmen. The Lawmen. Oh. And they used to have brown type uh, short jackets, <laughs> and they wore skinny black ties, white shirts. They all had matching, you know, matching uniforms. And he played at, the, at East Warren Lanes for years before he started breaking into doing concert stuff. I mean, he was there probably a solid four or five years. And people used to come and see him all the time. I mean, you know, it was a bowling alley. And they sold some kind of food like hot dogs and whatever to whatever. But he made it so that the bar actually started having more clientele and people spending more money because of what he did. Now explain, this is so invigorating. First of all, it was called East Side Lanes. What was it called? East Warren Lanes. Um, on Warren, Warren Avenue, two blocks east of Cadu Road, which we lived on Cadu. And what was he, you know, I've listened to the albums. Do you think that um, the live experience just sticking with your brother for a minute, was it ever really ever captured on record or was the live experience completely over the top? Uh, a lot of it was caught on record. I mean, if you listen to all of his albums from the beginning forward, you'll see the subtle changes in each recording hmm. of the feel, of the fluid, of the meaning, of the context. And it grew and grew as, as he got older and older. <clears throat> Can you talk about how he, when did he basically, like, you were in the, the sanctified church, did you wind up sort of wanting to carve your own path, or what, did he say, hey, da you know, Dallas, you know, let's get, you know, let's get you some uh, experience, you know, being my band. How, how did, you know, like, to me, in, in so many ways, like, you know, whether it's the Heath brothers or you know, all these different uh, families that had multiple people that came from them. I mean, it was, it, it was, there was tough love, but it was also like a farm system. Uh, and I just wonder, did you try to sort of carve your own path or? Well, be 
because there was such an age difference, we were in two different lands at the same time. That's right. Uh, you know, he was doing the cover stuff when he started at East Warren Lane, but he was also starting to write songs at that time and would incorporate, every once in a while he'd incorporate and put one of them in the set, you know, or a couple of them during the night, you know, and, and, and that was it. And then he released a couple of records when he was like, oh gosh, 18, 19 years old on Sound Records. They used to be up near Mount, uh, up near um, St. Clair. Really? Sound? Wait, was that Sound Record? That was in Michigan? Yes. Yeah, they had a red and silver label. Oh, my God. Wow. And uh, that's where he first started recording. I remember we used to go up there from time to time, and that was back when they did everything on acetate. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it was just, you know, it gets real hissy after about 20 plays, so... But, uh, yeah, he was doing that, and then he was writing more and more. I mean, he had a song that he did that got a lot of airplay called uh, Rosanna. And, uh, but we, we were in different, different directions at that time. You know, it was, he was starting to do the original stuff and coming up with that. I, on the other hand, started out doing all the Hendrix and Cream and, you know, all of that stuff. I had a power trio for a while, which I did for... I don't know, I think it was a year or two, and then I got tired of the trio saying it's just too loud and had to play way too much. <laughs> Wait a minute. What year was that? So what? you were born in 54. I mean, when when did when did that power trio come? 67, something like that? Yeah, 66, 67. I got my first guitar in March 19, 1966. My mom got me up into Jazzmaster. Uh, Bob got his first guitar was an Epiphone, was in 1961, I think. And then he got his first Stratocaster in 1964. Did you ever go to um, the Bluebird Inn? I mean, the, 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 uh, this is what I want to get at. Elvin Jones, Donald Bird, Kenny Burrell, Pepper Adams, Tommy Flanagan, the list goes, there were so many jazz cats. And I'm not saying that you ever carved out, a, you didn't go to New York and try to, you weren't a bebopper. What were your, what was your exposure to that bastion of jazz in Detroit? You know, there was a um, a keyboard player that that used to have a gig downtown at the Nakarima Club or something. Uh, at the hotel, it was in the basement of a hotel. John Sinclair had a, a nightclub down in the basement called the Rainbow Room, wow. and keyboard player. Geez, I wish I could remember his name. He was the first keyboard player I ever saw that played bass with left hand and, and Hammond. And it was just him and a drummer. And once in a while, he'd have either a guest guitar player or a saxophone player come in and play. He was playing, Lyman was he playing B3 or, or piano? B3. His name was Lyman Woodard. Dude, you're making, this is unreal. So, because that was the thing, man. I saw that, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but sure. you're like playing in a band with these the mo I've been looking for these cats, the, the, the Van Winkles. Well, I mean, like, because that group was just doing, because th there was a very trendy time where it was just, you'd play organ, drums. When, when you talked about your brother in the bowling alley, that I just flashed on that. That was very trendy back at a certain period of time where you had these just organ drum duos. Well, that's back, you know, the, it was, Teagarden and Van Winkle came to Detroit, I think it was in the late 60s, because I remember we did a show with them up at, uh, this big horse farm and uh oh my god that's when they came in and and that was when they finally put out the the big hit for them in that time frame was god love rock and roll um which when skip passed away i ended up learning that song because uh tea garden was at the ceremony of life for him and his son came in uh, here in la and uh and you played that. The band learned the song. We played it exactly the way Skip recorded it. Uh, they're looking. I can feel the the. I can feel Skip's presence here. To, I mean, so ultimately, you you Lyman Wood Woodyard you saw down there. Um, right. You know, we used to go. We used to go hit some clubs around town. I mean, the Driftwood and uh, a couple other clubs. I mean, I went to a couple of jazz clubs, but jazz was never really my cup of tea. Um, uh, can you talk about what that word means? We could meet, you know, Dallas and I could walk down the street in L.A. and ask people what, 20 different people, what their definition of jazz is. We get 20 different answers. And 
at that time, it was still definitely a popular American music. But I just wanted you to talk about what that meant to you and, and ultimately, like, what, what you were trying to get across. Did you think it was maybe too snobbish? or I mean, what was it no, about? I never, I, I never thought that. Back then, jazz to me was, there were two different modes of jazz. There was what I would call the sweet jazz, yep. which would be the stuff like Mahalia Jackson or wow. somebody like that would do. And then there was the outside jazz, which is the stuff that was more improvised than anything else. And cats just went wherever they wanted to go. It didn't matter. Guitar player take them one place, keyboard player take them to another place. Drummer and a bass player might take them to a whole different room. That's right. Um, exactly so right. It was, very, it was very eclectic, I guess, is the, is the correct word for it. Um, but then you had the, the, you know, the simple jazz, you know, Kenny Burrell or uh, uh, even Cornell Dupree, for that matter. I mean, when did you first? When did you first cross see him play? I, I'm curious because I know you went on. I think you either went on tour with him with Bonnie. I, I just was blown away by that. Who's that? Cornell. Oh yeah, Cornell. He used to. We we used to. We had the Hodge Brothers band down in, here in L.A which consisted of my brother, myself, Skip Van Winkle on, on organ and pedals, Larry Zack on drums, who used to work with Jackson Brown and several others. It's uh, most, that's the nastiest band. In, is there any live recordings of that band? Uh, there's a couple. There used to be a bunch of them, and the sound engineer that we had at that time, Joe, he passed away from a heart attack, and, and we didn't know about it. And it wasn't until a couple of years later, and we learned that his... Uh, mom had thrown everything out because she didn't know what it was <laughs> and fortunately we had some tapes of it but not a lot when i didn't have as many as what fish did and then when fish's house burnt down when he lived in panorama city um all those tapes died so there's not very much of it but we had marty greb on keys and saxophone rest in peace a legend yep yes you know, one of the originating founders of the Buckingham. That's right. A lot of people didn't know. That's he is. That's um, right. That's absolutely right. And then David Woodford on saxophone. He he would. Marty sang, played organ, played sax. Woody sang, played keyboard, and he sang, and sax. Um, and then at one point in the very beginning with the Hodge Brothers, Freebo played bass with us, but that didn't last long. And it just got to be with Skip playing the pedals. And I tell you what, everybody everybody used to just be amazed at the band. I mean, Bonnie would come in. Uh, oh, shit, man. What was, the, what was the venue that you played, that you had the gig at? We had a gig for about a year and a half down in a place called O'Mahoney's. Wow. That, I mean, dude, that is... Hold on. And Skip, how... I mean, that to me... You didn't even have a bass player, right? We had Skip Van Winkle. We didn't need a bass player. Yeah, he was kicking pedals, so he's playing left-hand bass. That's unbelievable. I, used, I, I gave him the handle after many years later. It was uh, <laughs> I would introduce him on stage as Skip Van Winkle and Seymour Feet. <laughs> Dallas <laughs> Hodge, man. He what? always wore his silver self-spray-painted boots. So, And he had two... Uh, finale lights on the bottom of the organ on the legs right uh, that shone right on the bass pedals so they would they would shine in that sil on that silver paint and I just said hmm, see more Pete I like that <laughs> he even got he got even got to the point of saying well Dallas I, I ain't too bad <laughs> where where was he originally from? Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oh my God! This is uh, you know just. <clears throat> did you got? Did you ever go to the the twenty grand? I was there once, I think, maybe twice. Right, Baker's Keyboard Lounge. I'm just throwing out some of the bigger like sort Baker's, of Baker's. That Baker's not Driftwood. Baker's was the other jazz joint in town. Right, right. That's where all, that's where all the big dogs came. Yeah, through. Freddie Hubbard oh. would come through. All those cats. Oh, yeah. yeah. All the all the big guys. That was like that was like. That was to them as the East Town Ballroom was to all the rockers. Well, talk about the East. I've never heard of that. So, I mean, because I've interviewed Nugent. Nugent was Joe Podorsik. Does that name ring a bell? Yep. So, like, I mean, Nugent was on the bandstand with Bo Diddley. This is pre-Amboy Dukes, but East Side Ballroom, take it away. That, explain the vibe. Because, you know, it wasn't like, 
you guys were having, there was just, all music was just sort of, it was before, you could walk into a Woolworths or a Five and Dime, and, you know, there'd be a Blackwood Brothers followed by, you know, Gary Bartz, uh, you know, be jazz into folk and everything. There was, we weren't, it, we weren't separated by labels. Labels had not... No, in, it, the, East, yeah. the East Town Ballroom, yeah. Bob Garris, who owned the thing, um, you know, it was a converted theater. They left the seating upstairs on the uh, on the upper, upper level, and they took all the seats out down on the lower level. And they would bring in... Bob Garris was very good about bringing in all kinds of different talent. Mm. You know, he would have maybe uh, Bo Diddley there. He would have Purple Harem there. He would have... He had Elton John there. As a matter of fact, Elton John's first tour to America, we opened for him with the Catfish Band. No way. Two days in a row. Oh, uh, well, he was there one day. Lee Michaels was there the other day. Another badass, um, yeah. Unbelievable. And we opened and recorded the live Catfish album there. Oh, okay. So I was wondering about the, the genesis of the live fish out. That was recorded there. Opening for, for one my, night for Elton John and one night for uh, Lee Michaels. Explain in your well, had you actually um, when you before that band? How much did you have your own band before that? Was that before? Is that did you have the? Oh yeah. yeah, I had I had several bands before that. I had a band called Salvage, which started out as a trio and then went to a quartet. Um, then I had a band called Deluxe that went from a quintet to a 10-piece band. Um, and it was, I think, well after Deluxe was when we finally... Fish had, Fish had the band, the Catfish Band, which got signed to Epic Records in the beginning. Hmm. And at one point in time, a couple of the guys in the band, actually three of the guys in the band, left the band. So Bob said to me, he goes, you want to bring your guys in? I said, sure, we'll do that. And then we did that, and we had uh, Ken Cooper from Epic Records came out to see us play at something different up on 12 Mile in Northwestern. And I think it's Birmingham area. I forget now. Mm. But anyway, he came, and uh, our manager at the time, Jim Cassidy, who managed Tea Garden and Van Winkle at one uh, in the beginning uh, got him just really loaded. I mean, <laughs> he'd, have bought, he'd, have, he'd have bought anything that night. Moonshine, yeah, and I did, I did, yeah. So he ended up going back to New York, and they ended up saying, "Okay, we'll give you a deal, but here's the deal: we want the original guys back in the band." And that was my first experience, to be honest with you, that there's a difference between uh, friendship. And business. Hmm. And my brother had to make, and I know it was a tough decision, and I never held it against him. Um, I know some people would have being a brother, but it was that was not the way we were raised. Uh, Explain. Thanks. I want. I want you to. This is so important for my daughters. If you, uh, this is really amazing. So, first of all, I, why did those guys even want to come back? I thought they just they they left on their own accord. But I guess. Well, they left off because there, there was a brouhaha. The brouhaha was this. When they went to New York, they played the Fillmore East several times, mm. a couple other joints, I think the Lone Star. Yeah. Um, and when they started making noise in the press, it was, they would always mention the Catfish Band with Bob Hodge. Then it became Catfish Bob Hodge. And they didn't really like that idea because he was being singled out as the front guy, which was his job. <laughs> He's the front man. I don't know what the... I mean, he was just getting... I mean, he was getting too much of the spotlight, they thought? He was getting too much of the attention in their eyes. Yeah. And so they said, you know, you, you got to tell him that stop this Catfish Bob Hyde shit. And it was just like, uh, you're making a hard call here. And so they said, well, okay, we quit. So... He put the band together. I had brought in my guys, Dennis Cranor on bass, Jim Deemers on drums, and myself. And we still had Harry Phillips on um, hmm. piano and organ. And that's what we did the live album with, actually, was, was that lineup. Uh, it was shortly after that when Epic Records, you know, 
basically at that point they had changed managers and, and had a guy in, in New York, uh, I forget his name off the top of my head, really nice guy. Um, but he was the one that said the record company wanted to have the original guy. So he came back to Bob, Bob came to us. He goes, look, he goes, this is what management wants me to do. Not my call per se, but it's what they want to do. And I knew he was going to go somewhere. To this day, I'm surprised he's not been not been even nominated into the... Dude, movie. the man is... I mean, I, this is... But but it's about excavating this gold, man. Because he is... It's gold. The fam, Your family's gold. Well, it, it, amazes me, it amazes me that to this day, he's never been nominated to be into the Michigan Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, he was a stalwart back at the time... Bob Seger used to open for us. I know, dude. I could feel th- I could feel this. I I knew, but it's always that there's always somebody before. Not that this is an excuse, but everybody thinks that Sly Stone and James Brown invented funk music. On, in the West Coast, there was a guy named Johnny Talbot who's still alive, and he had a band called Johnny Talbot and the Thangs. Sixty three. James Brown and the Flames didn't come around for a year or two later. And yet, well, this. I mean, you know, think about uh, the guy from the. Well, yeah, he was a kid at the time. He died. Baby Hewson, Baby Louie, Baby. Oh, well, baby! I mean, come. Uh, that's the, that. That's cat. That's your. That's right there with you. That's in my wheelhouse, man. And so, <sighs> Holy Bob cow. came to us and he goes, "Look, I got to bring the guys back. That's what the record company and the management want." And I went, "Okay." He goes, "I'm going to give you all five hundred dollars a piece." For, for all what you've done. It's good point. good and dough at the time, time yeah. $500 was a lot of money. That's like a couple that grand, up, yeah, that, easy, yeah. That ended up giving me the money to buy my first ever guitar that I bought myself, which I still have to this day, oh. my 68 Les Paul. That and, is so beautiful. Yeah. I, I just, so, 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 so he cuts the record, but then I walk into my record store in Tucson in... Uh, last week and I find this insane Catfish Hodge record with Dallas Hodge came out in 72 on Eastbound so how did that that, that, that was, was a quick turnaround I mean, get you, that was the boogeyman gonna get your album oh my it's my it's it, it so that was he he did he he did that for the record company it, it did did any of those songs get radio play the, on that one-off record uh, that he the did? The Man, it was being played on CKLW because what we did in Armand Palladium, the record company president, owner, he made a smart call. The guy who was doing the engineering for us in Toronto because we recorded up there. Uh, Lee DiCarlo? Yes, Lee DiCarlo and Ken... Oh, I'll think of it when you hang up the phone. <laughs> they, we set it up, or they set it up. I had nothing to do with it. They set it up that he was co-writer on several of the tunes. That way we could break through the the old issue of having Canadian content. Because CKLW had a hard time playing you if you didn't have Canadian content. Bob Seger got, a, got through that, and then he wrote, then he wrote that song, Rosalie, which she wasn't real happy about it because it basically called her out on the carpet for being what she was and who she was. Right. And uh, he actually pissed her off with it, but it it came to be a big hit. So we got, we had Boogeyman, gonna, uh, the Boogeyman going to get you on the radio. I remember the first time I heard it was riding down the street in the car. It didn't have no FM back then. It had AM station. And all of a sudden on CKLW, here comes the Catfish Hodge Band, Boogeyman going to get you. And I just like shit my pants. Dude, honestly, that 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 this is the. So I want to be clear. That was a that was a a, a station a bleed through station from Toronto or Canada coming through. Uh, they were they were in Windsor, Ontario, and they were the largest AM broadcasting station within four hundred miles. Oh my they god! They reached they reached all the way down to Kentucky. Uh, they had a 50,000 watts of broadcast power. And so because DiCarlo was like co, co-writer, co you were able well, to... It was, it was Kenny, the, the engineer, who they put on as co-writer. Uh, but that's how we got it on to CKL. Exactly, exactly. I can't believe the feeling you must have had when you heard that song. On oh, radio, it's like any it's like any sixteen year old kid, man. You hear yourself on the radio, and it's on the most powerful station in town. 
you know, buddy, I'm sure that's the same way Elvis felt when he heard it. I know, but it was just so much more innocent because you had regional radio and, like, it wasn't all this syndicated playing the same damn thing for a year. And no. I mean, it, it's just no. like, it was that's so... Yeah. Go ahead. No, it just, it was so, it was, there was no, the bean counters had not gotten involved. I mean, it was just so sort of, uh, and, the, and the music was so ridiculously good. <laughs> well, you know, that's when you really had pay-to-play money happening. Explain uh, that, explain no, that. No, <clears throat> well, if you wanted your record on the radio, you paid the radio station to get it on. <laughs> you know, that's just what it was, pay-to-play. Um, all of it was, though, at the same time, that gave a lot of artists a new chance to, to be able to get on. The other part of it was, is like you're saying, we didn't have all that syndication stuff back then. So the radio stations, the even the AM jocks, were free to play what they felt was good. Now, they couldn't do a ton of it. You know, I mean, they had to stay within the top 10, top 15 format that hmm. the station had going. But they could throw in the other stuff, and nobody gave them a hard time about it. And then, voila, came FM radio and, and Detroit WABX and WKNR um, and W, what was the other one, W, I forget now. They were the ones who came in totally free form, and they played whoever they wanted. And they would play some of the charting people because that was part of the deal. They played what they called good music. I freaking love, yeah, because you would have any, everything from Mahavishnu Orchestra into Stravinsky into, you know, the Serendipity Singers into, I mean, into the Hodge Band. I mean, it was insane, the kind of stuff. Oh, you- yeah. It was, it was free spin. I mean, it was like I was talking to uh, hmm. one of the ABX guys who's retired now, um, who was doing shows for a while, even even when he re- left Detroit. Uh, and it was it was once... You know, what's the big conglomerate? There's three of them that own all the radio. The Cumulus, uh, you know, uh, you know what? Clear I'm Channel, about. yeah, yeah, yeah. Clear Channel, yeah. And uh, he used to do the stuff from his his house in Florida. <laughs> and I said, well, I said, I said what, what do you do? He goes, they send me the set list, the song list. I announce the songs. I do the commercials, and then I send it back to him. Robot. Total said, robot. Hey, do you get to pick any songs? He goes, oh, no, that's not allowed no more. Yeah. And that's just, that's, you know, I don't even want to get on my soapbox right now, but as a journalist, as a rogue journalist, it, it really, you know, there's a few other, I just, we're going to do set two, Dallas, because we've just barely scratched, I'm having such a ball, but I have to ask you about um, the chess mate, the living end, the Masonic temple. I mean, you weren't a folky per se, but were you? Played all of them. Because I mean, I, I have this clip. I have this this Gordon Lightfoot interview that I did, and he was talking about going to see at the Masonic temple Oscar Peterson with Ray Brown. You know, I mean, it's unbelievable. The ex- back then, back then, you had Ford Auditorium, you had Masonic Temple. Uh, you had the Chessmate Lounge, which was, you know, the fun bar place to go. Right. The other the other two venues were more like concert venues. But they, back then, again, it was one of those things. Music was wildly, uh, I'm going to use the word free, not from a cost standpoint. Right. But from a, a performance standpoint. You know, I mean, like I said, Seer used to open up for us. I opened up for... Gosh, I can't tell you who all the bands I opened for. You know, Fleetwood Mac, uh, uh, what is Purple, Deep Purple, Grand yeah. Grand Funk Railroad, or you know, oh stuff. Yeah. yeah, I mean all those guys. Matter of fact, I have a story about Grand Funk. Uh, then why don't you Why don't you share that? I'd love to hear it. Well, remember I said earlier we had we were Ma used to come and sing and some kind oh, of yeah. Purple, but, oh yeah, oh yeah. So we had revamped the tune so to speak, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, having guitar players as solo people and, you know, so on and so forth, we redid it somewhat. You know, it still had its core and it still had its harmonies and everything like that. Well, Grand Funk was supposed to play one night at Cobo Hall and Mark got sick. So they canceled the show for the night and the guys came by. We were playing, we just happened to be playing that night at a little hole in the wall joint on the east side that Everybody and the mother came to it. There was two clubs on the east side at that time that 
people like Rod Stewart and everybody would show up. One was called Sexy Sadies down on Mac and Alter. Oh, my God, this is great. The other one was called uh, the Red Carpet Lounge, which was right next door to the Alger Theater at Warren and Outer Drive. Okay? So we're in there playing one night, and and Mark and the guys in the band, they come walking in, and and, and everybody looks at me. You know who that is? Yeah, I know who it is. (laughs) (laughs) Ain't no big deal to me. Yeah, right, right. You got it. You know, so we we did some kind of wonderful. I know this was not coincidence. Six weeks later, Grand Funk released it and made it another white boy hit. Oh my! And boy, God. did that not sit in my crow very well. There are no coincidences in life. Period. No, so, yeah, no, that's, no. And it was yeah. just like, in one sense, I mean, if you would have heard our version and you would have heard their version, you would have been going, "Well, who's who?" That's how close it was. And it was like, you know, the whole band, when it came out, it was like, are you kidding me? I said, well, hey, you know, we didn't write the song. We just rearranged it. And anybody can rearrange anybody's song. I did that with Love Me Do. So it's like, you know. (laughs) And that was so typical of your generation, too. I mean, I remember George Porter from the Meters telling me, you know, they... The meters would take a Stephen Stills tune and turn it upside down and inside out, tra- change Yo, it. Oh man, take me down to New Orleans, man. <laughs> yeah, boys, man. You boys. know, and like, and like, and like, in some ways, yeah. You know what? As a young cat, it would sit in my crow. You know, it wouldn't sit well with me either. But then, I don't know. Just looking at it from sort of objectively, it's just what a high honor in some ways. You know, where you know. Well, yeah, because I mean, you know, they took somebody else's song and they redid it. But, you know, I never heard any of those guys who did that, you know, whether it was the, the Meters or the Neville Brothers or anybody else for that matter. I've never heard anybody do redos and make them sound bad. <laughs> That's right. You know, yeah. they always come out sounding good. It may not have the same groove, might have a different groove, might have a second line groove. Right. To a ballad. Right. You know what I mean? But the songs never sounded bad. You know, and, and, and for that, I always, I you know, I, I took it as a respect. That's what I took it as. I didn't ever, never took it as being, you know, someone, you know, cheating on it or whatever, whatever, whatever. I had a band from Germany after I was traveling with Can Heat for the time I was with them. They sent me an email. Can we do your song, Bad Trouble? I sent them an email back. I said, I'm flattered. I yeah. said, please do. You can do any of my songs that you wish, however you wish to do them. And they actually ended up doing it almost identical to the way I wrote the song and did a really good job. And I got to tell you, foreign players, they it's difficult for them to find what I call the groove that we find here. Interesting. What do you mean by that? Well, you know... If you think of Cool and the Gang, you think of Dr. John, you think of Bonnie, Yeah, I dig, bro. I dig. I, yeah, I dig. Yeah, there, yeah. There's a sound that we produce that they try to mimic. They can't do it because it, it, there, there's nothing like the Gulf Coast and New Orleans and all, well, all the history I, of this country, too, you know? I, I was going over there for a while after Canned Heat um, and was playing with this guitar player named Andy Eggert. Big guitar player, harmonica player. Um, mm. had a drummer, Hani, who was from Egypt, from Cairo, wow. um, and a German bass player. And you could come and watch the Andy Eggert band play, and they played one way. And as soon as I walked on the stage, they played a totally different way. <laughs> and people would say to me and go, how do you do that? You, you seem to have the ability to take bands and just rearrange them automatically the way you want to go and never have to say nothing. I said, you know, I don't know what it is. I can't tell you. I don't instruct people very much. I give them, as I call, roadmaps. That's right. We're going to go this direction, and now how you feel it, okay, what you do I don't like, I might say something. If it's okay, then I ain't going to say nothing, uh, other than it sounds good. Right, you just a couple signposts here and there, you know? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you, here's the mile marker one, and down there is 34. So we're going to wig and wag all the way through until we get to 34. <laughs> and, and it was amazing because people would come up to me. I don't know how you do it, man. I mean, we love Andy. Don't get me wrong, you know. And, and, and But what you bring to the stage is just 
different. I go, you know, it's because it's from my heart and my soul, and I'm from home. And that's the only thing that I can tell you. It would be like me trying to mimic greats like the Rolling Stones. Right. I can't mimic that. I can play it, but I can't mimic that. And so it was like for me, you know, it's, and it's not to, to dose the players at all because they're all really good players. I mean, I had another band that I worked with over there uh, that was out of Belgium, and it was the same thing. Organ player was great. Everybody in the band was great. Uh, but when they went on the stage, they sing the song's structure to the way they can sing it. And I don't know sometimes if that's how they feel it or that's just how they can sing it. This is fascinating. This is yeah. No, I think you're nailing it. You cannot replace the fact that we have both feet on the ground in this bastion of where the music was created and if you're trying to mimic it that's all you're going to be able to do it's never going to necessarily feel that that way you know well that's why guys like you know i always used to love it in the young days you know the girls always went bananas for anybody with a british accent <laughs> right i mean they just went batshit crazy i'm crazy uh, and and it was like but you go to europe they did the same thing about the Americans. <laughs> so it was like, you know, tit for tat. And it was just like, that's why I was watching the thing the other day about, um, uh, you'll remember it when we hang up. Mr. Mr. Piano King. Um, Mr. Piano. Yeah. Was Nat King Cole or? No, Great Balls of Fire. No, oh, Jerry Lee Lewis. There. Jerry Lee Lewis. No, no, no. <laughs> oh, Little Richard. Little Richard. Little Richard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Mick Jagger's made a comment. I was just like going, he goes, we were awed by him. Yeah. Well, he was just as awed by them as they were him. And he, you know, and it's like they even admitted to it. They took a lot of what he did and structured some of their songs to that style. And they were one of the few bands that were able, I think, and to this day, British bands who could capture that magic. Dallas, can I, I got to go pick up my younger daughter right now. Do, do you think we could do set two tomorrow at the same time? Should be able to. Just give me a yodel. All right. Yeah, it was such, it's such an honor. And we're going to get the Hodge family in. I am going to, listen, my brother and I, I mean, I was born in 1978. My brother and I, right? But I'm, all I'm saying is that I, I'm making it one of my goals to get your brother into the Detroit Music Hall of Fame. That's absolutely a, a, a priority I, for I, me. I, I said last year when they were doing the nominations and stuff, I was on Facebook and I put a big thing up there. I'm not saying this because. I don't necessarily know or feel that I deserve a place in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame there. I mean, you know, I was there for many, many years until I left, and I left for my own reasons, and it was basically from the weather. Uh, Absolutely. Because I had a great band there. All my bands were always good. I mean, and I always tried to... Uh, I never went looking for the hottest players. <laughs> now, that may sound no, no, you were looking for the team, man. You got to put a I team was together. Looking for the guys who, a, number one, most important, I can get along with. Right. B, that can play well enough that if I need to help teach them a part or a style, they will listen to me and not be upset by it. And I had my guitar player that I moved to California with me. He's still up in Jan in Santa Cruz, George Lindberg. Um, we were talking one time after the fact, after I left up there to come down south. He goes, he goes, you know what what people called you, don't you? And I said, no, they all called you the God, the Godfather. And I said, what are you talking about? You know, oh no, always called you a, the legend. And I said, look, I, I always tell people this: the word legend is is saved for those who have passed. Wow! Interest, interest, interesting. So, so the Godfather meaning uh, not overly verbal, not micromanaging, but when you know, but 
Well, it was just, you know, they said you had legendary status. I wasn't the godfather. They said you had legendary, you had legendary status. That, 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 but no, I, I, I'm okay with, in the present moment, being alive, being called a legend. People call me that too, man. Well, it was funny because I said to George, I said, what are you talking about? He goes, Dallas? He goes, everybody in Detroit wanted to play in your band. I said, get out of town. He goes, no, man. He goes, they all wanted to play in your band. And it's funny because he is the opposite style guitar player than I am. He's more of the the Aerosmith kind of kind of guy, Led Zeppelin. Kind yeah, of right, guy. right, right. Hard, right. Know, I, got that, I got that Freddie King, BB King blues tinge. That's where I'm at. And uh, it was like when, when he says, "When you asked me to come play in the band, he goes, you don't know how excited I was." I said, "You're kidding me." He goes, "No." He goes, you have a, a reputation, man. You know, you are the guy. Well, we're getting like, then. Then the, I'm I'm getting Dallas Hodge and Bob Hodge. We're we're I'm making a huge. You got a, a huge advocate in Jake Feinberg. We're, we're getting. There's no way you guys deserve both deserve a place in that Hall of Fame. You were there from the outset, making music, original music, creating bands. And everybody to any major musician that was around there would attest to that. So I, I listen. I'll, uh, I'll call, call you tomorrow. tomorrow. I'll call you tomorrow. Thanks, Jake. Much love, dude. My pleasure. Later. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.